Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. We hear the word rhetoric thrown around all the time in our public discourse. The intention of his rhetoric or her rhetoric was this or that, but seldom do we hear from experts on rhetoric itself. Today, my guest is Joanna Hartlius. She teaches rhetorical studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Rhetoric is her specialty. In particular, her research focuses on rhetorical theory and criticism with an emphasis on expertise, public memory, and digital rhetoric. We had a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I give you Joanna Hartlius. Johanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I had a really busy morning and I, my wife has the day off. Tomorrow is her birthday. And I said to her that, you know, I was running around scrambling before I called you. And I said, babe, I'm sorry if I'm not feeling very present this morning. And she's like, oh, whatever. I said, and I said, well, don't I get credit for saying like what a sensitive guy should say if they're right. So you're a professor of rhetoric, good rhetoric, bad rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, so, um, rhetoric tends to mean, um, other, something other than substance, right? Like all the politicians now are trying to, to outdo each other on who says more times, uh, oh, what we need is action and straight talk. None of this rhetoric. Obviously that is a misconstrual of, of what rhetoric is as an art and a practice. It means the use of persuasive language to wield power basically. So I was trying... So it can be good or bad. So I was trying to get uh, relational uh, leverage, and my guess is it was a rhetorical strategy that was... Uh, like Luther would say, Martin Luther, the great reformer, like, you know, the, the, once you point out the good work you're doing, it sort of spoils the good work. <laughs> it does, and um, you you uh, maybe have to read your audience a little bit better. Audience adaptation is sort of key to a successful rhetorical strategy. So uh, being a, a professor... In rhetoric studies in the age of Trump, I mean, that's got to be fascinating because he, I mean, he knows his audience in some levels and other levels doesn't like, I mean, it, it, I mean, how do you, do you, do people ask you this question a lot? Like in the post Trump era, like, Hey, what, you know, Hey, this is what you study communication, (laughs) rhetorical strategy. What's his deal? Well, they do. Um, there's actually, so from my perspective, yes, people do ask me about it and they, um, and I think that what we're seeing from Trump is a, a number of different uh, rhetorical habits, um, but it's it's for sure a veering into the absurd. And so I think like these conversations about uh, fact checking and is he or is he not deceptive? In fact, I'm writing this essay about post-truth um, with a colleague of mine at Pitt. Um, I just don't, um, I don't know that those conversations are as productive as trying to use other perspectives on what he's up to. So like another friend of mine has written an essay, I think it's coming out in the Rhetoric Society Quarterly about Trump and perversion. And so like, what is, what is the reason why his public language works the way it does? Because the assessment practices that we're used to, like, is this true or false is this good or evil? Like they're just, they're, they're irrelevant or at least for tip for this particular person. So what you're saying is Trump is beyond good and evil, like Nietzsche. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Cause look at like within arm's reach. I, I love, yeah, <laughs> there's a, you, uh, for those, this is an audio medium. So like she just held up the portable Nietzsche by Walter Cotton. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a Nietzsche reader by Blackwell that's $17. And it's like, 
three times the size of that book with critical essays. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. It's the I think it's back by Rutledge. But so I just, if you want another thing in your hand with Nietzsche, good one. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a Nietzsche fan. No, but yeah. So so that so you're saying it it's is Trump has he bursted the bubble in such a way that like now we have to sort of reimagine the way th- we think about public communication. Why why are the old rhetor- rhetorical analytic strategies not helpful anymore? What is not helpful about them? Because they operate within um, a frame that assumes a kind of rationality as the key logos of public discourse. And um, it's not necessarily the only one that could be good, like all things being being equal, but it's the one that we've relied on as a kind of ideal in a Habermasian sense of, of how to do public communication. Uh, and it isn't, it isn't uh, applicable right now. And so whether we like we can we can scream at the ocean about what a bad guy Trump is until, you know, until we're blue in the face. But it just doesn't really I think it doesn't get us anywhere in terms of why um, he's so popular or like why uh, why he responded to uh, a voter predilection that that ended up getting him the office. So my um, a colleague of mine at Pitt, his name is Paul Johnson. He's written an essay that I think is really great about um, Trump and masculinity and the sort of recovery of uh, angry white masculinity. And um, I think that it's, he's also written other works on like um, Breaking Bad and why um, and the connection that he draws between these kinds of phenomena about like the 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 angry white dude strikes back is really powerful. Were, were you a good communicator as a kid and a teenager? I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. All right. Easy answer. So is, how, I mean, I guess that, like what? Um, why would you ask that? It, well, I mean, I wonder if you study rhetoric. Like, it, 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 I, I imagine like, and it's a pretty philosophical. First of all, you're you've got to have a knack and a draw to things that are cerebral and life of the mind kind of thing. But also, like, I would guess either you're good at persuading people and connecting and communicating and want to know why, mm-hmm. or you're bad at it and you'd like to get better. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I would assume that like. The draw, like, of I, does that happen at the graduate cocktail socials? Like, why'd you get into rhetoric? <laughs> are, those, are those the two groups or no? Um, well, no. I mean, the two groups I think more are uh, the theorists and the um, interventionists. So there are, across the board, there are a bunch of people who study uh, public communication because they want to improve public communication in a way that would have ethical consequences. Right? So if we, if we, communicated more effectively or more ethically then we would create we would become better at self-governance or we'd have better relationships etc etc and then and i wouldn't say that that's necessarily the category that i fall into the other category are the theorists which is more of i think what draws me like the people who are endlessly fascinated in why language is um is such an art form and why it is that it determines the big things and the little things like, you know, who, who, what toothpaste are you going to buy based on a persuasive message about toothpaste? But at the same time, you know, you're in ministry. Uh, Jason and I started that the hermeneutics pod because I'm, I'm just always drawn to the logos. Like why, why is it that logos is what we have at the point of contact between us and divinity? So language is all the big things and all the little things. 
Yeah. Do you know Von Balthasar's book, Love Alone is Credible? Mm-mm. No. Uh, I mean, it's a, sh- it's a short book. It's like less than a hundred pages. But he, his beginning statement in that book is that for centuries, the church, since the beginning of its inception, has been trying to figure out how the logos connects to the logoi, mm-hmm. the word connects to the words in the world. Yeah. And it's basically like, you know, he says, you know, in the patristic and medieval period, the church used religion and metaphysic, you know, like to, to look for those things. And in the modern period, it was more like experience and psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he thinks, he thinks it's really like the only point of contact is love. Although there's more discontinuity than continuity, but like, because the experience of revelation is something like when you fall in love with a piece of art, like what you find beautiful, you come to love and what you love, you find more beautiful. Sure. Yeah. That's smart. You have to send yeah, me Bob the, was, the, send me the he, reference. He was, um, he was, he was kind of exiled from the Catholic Church, like for a while. Like he was fell out of favor, and then John Paul made him a cardinal without a seat. I mean, like he's just going to elevate him to like theological cardinal, and he died two days before his elevation. It's just like tragically ironic. Yeah. So Nietzsche says that um, the the sacred is what um, we're not allowed uh, to laugh at. At, like so you know like maybe 911 is like the only you know sacred thing left or something but like but you for progressive cosmopolitan people you have written an essay taking on the closest thing to sacred i can think of which would be john stewart <laughs> that was so long ago yeah okay <laughs> yeah and you say that stewart is how do you put it? Like he's not an apostate from the school of democracy. He's a heretic because an apostate leaves the faith altogether, but a heretic practices a faith that the mainstream church or institution thinks actually undermines the faith. And so is he like a peddler of cynicism or was he in his heyday? I think in his heyday, he was a peddler of cynicism. I think that, um, well, okay, let me give you the context of that. So that the John Stewart project that you're talking I don't care about context. I mean, what are you, a rhetorician <laughs> or something? You, you think you think words and communication need to be put into context? Uh, Look, I, I, I'm in ministry. People don't put the Bible into context. <laughs> well, that's a mouthful. There's a whole set of problems right there. Uh, I wrote that piece um, with a mentor of mine, um, Rod Hart, at the University of Texas when I was a grad student, and it was it was the outcome of an event that we had uh, orchestrated at the National Communication Association conference one year, where Hart um, and I were. It was like a witch trial format, like a comedic performance of a witch trial, and John Stewart was going to be on trial. Hart and I were the prosecution, and two other professors, really like. Um, you know, high name type people um, were the defense. And then there was a moderator and we, that was the whole panel. And it was, it was really fun. It was well attended because people got really into it. And we like accused him of uh, heresy against uh, the, against the Republic, right. Being really bad for democracy. And then afterwards, it, it got published as a forum. Um, so all the, uh, the, the pieces of the prosecution, the essays from the prosecution and the, uh, the defense were put together. Um, and I had written, it, it could only be a relatively short piece, I remember, because I had written all this material about how Stewart's public persona and public language conform to uh, the classical cynicism uh, 
habits or, or praxis of uh, arguing and or kind of, of their posture in the world. And then that got really condensed because it had to. Um, and some of the, the, I think, thicker arguments were lopped off in favor of, you know, uh, what, what ended up being a, a sexier piece. But the, the, so in that moment, are you torn? It's like the academic and you like, Hey, we explain in long form prose using idiosyncratic language. You know, well, and like, it was an it, academic publication. So the, the, what was a critical studies in media communication is an academic journal, but we only had, you know, say you have 5,000 words or whatever. Uh, some things had to go. And I didn't, I didn't get to include the things that I think were actually more substantive. So it's rhetorically, it's like, hey, the, the shorter communication is, but this is, this, it's got to be the internal struggle of the person rhetoric studies because academics communicate one way. And yet mo I would guess that most communication theorists would say, um, do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. It depends on, again, like as always, it depends on who your audience is. So if you want people to believe that you know what you're doing and you, in a 9,000 or 12,000 word article, you have to use that long form. Like you have to be um, conversant in a kind of theoretical language in a particular style. And that gets you... Um, that gets you kind of credibility because it shows that you can wield that tool, but nobody talks like that, you know, either on the bus or in the coffee room, even at the university, obviously. Yeah. I often think it's weird that like we have academics trained pastors, right? Because what makes you a good academic is to uh, max use idiosyncratic language to maximize difference. Mm. So, like, if, if you're studying, like, you know, Cicero or Karl Barth and two people are at an academic conference and they're explaining why their views of, the, of this person's work are irreconcilable, it's either mm. or. And most people in the straight world, the normal world, they're just like, I don't know. I, well, I don't even know what you're saying. Whereas pastors have to use or become interdisciplinary generalists mm. and use broad language yeah. to bring people together. So it's like, it's weird that like, you know, a lot of people that teach at seminaries have never done pastor work at, at this day and age. That didn't used to be true, but now it's, so it's just funny, right? It's, it's weird that like, uh, it, it seems like a, a, a project destined for failure. Yeah. Well, at least it seems like a really important question. So would you rather have a, um, a pastor with no theological training or a theologist with no pastoral experience? Which yeah, is a thoroughly that, like, Ciceronian question. So it's funny that you said Cicero because his uh, his text on uh, the order, right, De Oratore, is all about with uh, Crassus and Antonius arguing about whether uh, erudition or street smarts are more important. Yeah, Cicero is one of my beach reads. Um, <laughs> no, I've never read that essay, but I'm, I will pick it up. Um, no, I, I think it's a false dichotomy. Like, you know, people like Calvin were preaching every day and, and doing... And, you know, deliberating, it, working out pastoral dispute. I mean, I remember reading somewhere once that Calvin, like, had to figure out, like, figure out that you couldn't put who was preaching in Geneva on the signs because people wouldn't go to church or they'd walk out of their parish thing to the next person mm -hmm. they like better. So, I mean, there's a guy that's like Augustine. I mean, <laughs> like most of the people in the pre-modern pe pe uh, pre period of the church are practitioners who are also um, theorists. Right. And so in the modern university, you wind up with this tension and eventually you split. So now, I, I mean, I, I think like our mutual friend, Jason Michelli is a yeah. perfect example of someone I think could train pastors very capably. And is he a, is he uh street smart or, or 
academics, yeah. but he's both. Yeah. Right. So, well, there's the, a the, reason the why is Jason that, is my favorite homilist ever. Um, and I think that he, this is, this is the moment why he introduced us for this, to hear this, to hear me say this. Yeah. Yes, well, yes. I told it to his face, you know, but he's, uh, he's so great at taking a compliment that <laughs> I had to you broadcast it again. But yeah, like the, I, I, as a congregant, like when I'm in the pews, I look for someone teaching me things and, um, that can be difficult to come by, but I think you're right that he, uh, makes um, very abstract concepts accessible. Yeah, it's kind of head-heart connection stuff, right? Yeah. Ultimately, what people look for in religious experience is probably something that, you know, touches the whole person. Yeah, it's hard to do, though, right? I mean, it must be. It's not easy. <laughs> so, you, I remember a Seinfeld bit where he talks about, like, you know, I mean, look, the doctor, I mean, how could you stand up to the guy? You're in this absurd gown with no back. Your underwear's <laughs> off. You're sitting there. So, I mean, you've written a book about the rhetoric of expertise, right? Is that, so, I mean, it is interesting, right? He has a point there, though, right? Like, when the person comes in professionally dressed in a white lab coat, which is the replacement for the medieval vestment, right? They're one of the, you know, they're one of the priests mm-hmm. of modern society, right? STEM, you know, that kind of stuff. And you have this gown that you can't zip in the back. Like, it's hard to say, well, can I get a second opinion? Yeah. <laughs> Except... Um, I think that maybe the period when it was the hardest to say, can I get a second opinion, is waning a little bit right now. Um, I think that the the accessibility of information has has put a big chink in the armor of uh, the culture of expertise that that grew out of late 19th century kind of professionalism and development of vocational structures and, and specialization that happened, you know, during and, and after the um, industrialization. So that's to say, nowadays, when somebody's in a doctor's office, they've already Googled whatever symptoms they had. And they'll say, I think you might be wrong, because on WebMD, I found out that blah, blah, blah. Or somebody takes their kid into the doctor, and the doctor says, your kid has strep throat. This happened to me less than 24 hours ago. Um, and you say, uh, well, it can't be that because I've been reading on Jenny McCarthy's blog that blah, 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 something else is going on with my kid. So we've, we've, um, I think that our, at least, uh, mainstream American culture has gotten to a situation where we think that we are able to, um, engage critically with expert knowledge. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's really problematic for our, our level of public discourse, I think. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, 
Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's hard, right, because all knowledge, doesn't all knowledge have a fiduciary framework? Like, I mean, you can't learn chemistry in the 10th grade if you go and say, well, until I perform all the experiments in the textbook, I'm not going to trust the textbook, right? But but Google, my wife is a medical professional. She's a nurse practitioner, works in a urology practice, and she thinks WebMD is the devil a lot of days in the sense of exactly this, because, you know, like T.S. Eliot says, right, that the mark of an educated person is they know what they don't know. And then when they acquire it, the knowledge, they're able to put that piece of information in proper relationship to the mm-hmm. rest of what they know. And then he says in the context of D.H. Lawrence, he says, who's a brilliant person that evinces no marks of education. Yeah. <laughs> but but isn't, isn't that the danger of the stuff, right? Like we, we, you can get information and not know where to put it or not know what you know and don't know, or its relationship is to the rest of the body of oh, knowledge yeah. that is. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, deference had a really has a really important role to play in hierarchies of expertise. Like I don't want, I want an expert to diagnose my appendicitis or whatever it is. I like, there, there are any number of things that I don't know. I think that we've just, um, the, the self produced and and self publicized construct of, of what, of individual experience has, um, has gotten to a point where we think that deference is always, uh, uh, a potential, surrender of power, which it kind of is, but the reasons why we, why deference was a good idea in the first place to people who know how to do the thing that we need them to do. Um, it was a good idea because general specialization is an oxymoron, right? We're not going to all be able to know things. And then during the 20th century, I think that it became evident why deference to authority was a problem or why it could be. Um, when I teach, um, I mentioned Habermas earlier, um, when I teach, uh, Habermas to, to undergraduate students, I start out with, well, when Habermas was little, the Nazis came to power and this drove his investigation of public language for a long time because he was wondering, how did this happen? Right? How did a usurpation of a pretty decent people happen and nobody said anything or like nobody could use their minds or their communication to stop them? And then he invented a whole theory of how rational argument was going to be the thing that um, disempowered authority from now on. I was listening to a podcast recently with William Crystal's podcast. Um, He used to edit the Weekly Standard and he had this woman on who was a kind of like moderate feminist, but very, uh, she's a probably, you know, in her sixties or something. And like, like critic, pretty critical of intersectionality and politically correct stuff on campuses. And she basically says, you know, I was trying to find the source of all this. And I went back and read the critical theorists and, oh, they're so wonderful and learned. (laughs) And, you know, they're both relatively conservative. And Krista goes, yes, a better form of bad thinking. (laughs) A better form of bad thinking. (laughs) Bad thinking. Yeah, because they're both sort of right of center people. And, you know, but they were, they were, they were talking about like, um, William F. Buckley's like, um, or he was talking with another guest about God and, and man at Harvard, which is about Yale University in like the middle of the century mm-hmm. and yeah. it's liberalism. And he's like, wow, we're all Buckley disciples and we kill for a, a Yale like right. that today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you, is, is, you know, 
as someone who lives at the center of academic life, is that, I mean, certainly, right, we can't dismiss the tremendous uh, injustices and marginalization of lots of people in the society that aren't white guys. At the same time, it seems that there's this tension with how do we keep the place a free marketplace of ideas uh, without being censorious? I mean, how, do you do you feel this tension like day to day in the University of Pittsburgh? Um, I guess the version of it that I that I experience at any university is that students are afraid to have um, to have a, a genuine conversation uh, as a form of exploration. So they're 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 worried about looking silly in front of their friends. They're ill trained before they get to college on what it means to have a, a discussion, a, a legitimate discussion. Um, we actually have a course on our books in, in at the University of Pittsburgh called Discussion because it's because it's a, a format, right? A, a practice of of back and forth. Um, so I think that students are um, they're ill trained in discussion. They're also ill trained in how to uh, fail at something. So if you have a point of view and somebody convinces you that that's not a sustainable position for you to say, all right, I'm convinced, right? That's just not something that we, um, we, we do a lot because they're not really there yet. It's something you die to see on cable news, right? And whether or not you even agreed with the person right or left, you just love this. Yeah. That's really persuasive. Yeah. It's just never, it's funny. Jerry Seinfeld was on the Colbert show and the late show. And he, he asked like, um, Colbert asked him about Bill Cosby because he said he loved Bill Cosby. He says, Can you still mm-hmm. listen to it? And, and Seinfeld says, "Sure." I mean, I, and then after the break, he said, "You know, I want to say you convinced me. I don't think I can. I can do it." And then Seinfeld says, "You know, just something you'd like to hear on cable news is, you know." I, and then Colbert goes, "Which you're just patting yourself right. on the back for doing." Yeah. <laughs> Which again, it's the Lutheran thing. It's sort of it's but the good work is spoiled by holding up is good. But but yeah, I mean, it, it is like rhetoricians that drive you nuts. Like watching, no, do you even watch cable really. news? Never. Very, very rarely. So if somebody asked you about Bill O'Reilly's rhetorical strategy, you'd be like, I don't have the data to analyze it. I don't have the motivation it. to analyze it. Um, I think that there are, there are in my field included, there are people whose expertise is specifically in um, presidential rhetoric, for example. That's a whole subfield of what I study, like we were talking before. Or um, the people who study like political rhetoric in news coverage, There are people whose entire careers are devoted to that and that are not in media studies or in journalism. They're in rhetoric or they're in political communication. So they, they do, they already do it better than I would. And, and I don't like Bill, the the, the Bill O'Reilly's of the world just aren't um, my, my main focus. Like my, my interest is in how do people convince other people that they know things and how, what kind of consequences does that have? Who do you think like is the best rhetorical communicator in public life right now taylor swift i love taylor swift i don't know i don't i was gonna i mean my my answer is why why would you say that's an interesting that's not a very podcasty kind of answer (laughs) (laughs) uh well i mean someone who continues to be um to continue like she continues to profit from being an actor on the public stage and she's not the only one but uh, she continues to kind of uh, come up with a new show regularly. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of um, the political agents that we see maybe are not as good at 
um, mixing up their show, so to speak. I mean, this is sort of sacrilegious from the point of view of a commitment to democratic discourse, but we're, I, we're why why is it sacrilegious? Uh, well, because it seems really cynical, right? To to talk about political statements made by legitimate actors as as spectacle, but I think that's what we're watching: the political spectacle, the theater of the absurd. It's funny that you know Dennis Le- Dennis Leary came out with it new book and he in the book he says that you know the three most trusted people in america are uh oprah winfrey tom hanks and denzel yes. washington he saw some poll and he said so we just should get rid of presidential elections it's a waste of money it's another and we just need a reality show america's got leaders but isn't that america's kind of what talent. we had and, we and then tom that's hanks, what happened oprah right 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 exactly and denzel and then we all vote on the first tuesday of november via yeah. text message and it was you know it, i mean is, is that going to be do you think like it's going to have to be like the need for celebrity going forward or is this just is trump just a, a blip like an outlier and, and maybe it'll sort of recalibrate to something more like a, a people that have some political expertise uh, or do you think this is a game changer i certainly hope that there's a kind of a pendulum swing uh that this this wakes people up to the risks or um, liabilities of electing um a person like this and maybe it it creates positive progressive political change in elections to come, but um, I've been studying for for the book I'm writing currently, which is called The Gifting Logos. It's about political and, and cultural expertise in the digital commons. Uh, I'm really I've been writing a lot about populism and um, what happens when you deconstruct assumptions about representation long enough. If you, it's like the the, the sweater completely unravels. The more you pull at the thread, eventually. It's really difficult to uh, to try to wear the sweater that you've been unraveling. So you're a religious person. You spend time in, in religious communities hearing religious rhetoricians. There seems to me to be a tension at the heart of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, for instance, wrote the bulk of the New Testament. And he's always talking about how we didn't come mm-hmm. with sophisticated rhetoric. We came with foolishness. And yet, gosh, it seems very rhetorically sophisticated yeah. the way he says we're not rhetorically sophisticated. <laughs> so, I mean, I wonder how much for people on the pulpit side of things how much is being rhetorically self-conscious an asset and how much is it a liability because it seems in the new testament there's a tension i mean between well to be to be clear simple language isn't rhetorically unsophisticated so right right um, yeah no rhetorical sophistication is matching the message to the audience in the context in which the encounter happens so um, if you are a really good Sunday school teacher, then you're able to speak to a group of kids sitting on the floor and telling them about the gospel um, in a way that gets them to really hear you, to, to feel that you take them seriously. If you're at the, in the pulpit, you've got to articulate a message that, um, that teaches and moves. Right? Again, we're back to Cicero, to teach, to delight, and to move is the purpose of the order, right? So when Paul is saying we're preaching foolishness, do you think he's talking where the substance? I think. The well, I think like, he's saying it's a character. It's kind of like the um, the Gettysburg Address, right? Um, people will not long, you know, soon everybody's going to forget what we said here. But that's obviously not what happened. And in 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 the Gettysburg Address, like it says, like we can't we can't consecrate this ground, um, but that's in fact what we're here to do. So I think that for Paul. Um, we're speaking foolishness. This is a kind of inversion of s- form and content and power and real power. So for him to say, 
Jesus is Lord uh, is a um, is sort of foolishness in the sense of here's someone who was murdered in the most gruesome way and the movement ostensibly didn't do all that well preaching this is foolishness and yet this is this is the future this is this is um the way and the truth and the light so what you're saying is rhetorically uh if if christianity is true god must have some no doubt rhetorical sophistication (laughs) given the results johanna Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is great talking with you. Thanks for having me. I I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Johanna for coming on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.